Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Gary, for inviting me. Um, I've been wanting to come here for a very long time, and um, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so, did you see the time? Okay. Given the weather today, I thought it would be a really good idea to read this poem. And actually, the last time I was here was during the season I talk about in this poem. It's called A Letter Sent to Summer. Oh, summer, if you would only come with your big baskets of flowers, dropping by like an old friend, just passing through the neighborhood. If you came to my door disguised as a thirsty biblical angel, I'd buy all your hairbrushes and magazines. I'd be more hospitable than any ancient king. I'd personally carry your luggage in, your monsoons, your squadrons of bugs, your plums, and lovely melons. Let the rose let out its long, long sigh and desire return to the hapless rabbit. This request is also in my own behalf. Inside my head, it is always snowing, even when I sleep. When I wake up and still you have not arrived, I curl back into my blizzard of linens not like the winter's buckets of whitewash. Please wallpaper my bedroom with leafy vegetables and farms. If you knocked right now, I would not interfere. Start near the window. Start right here. So I wrote that poem like 40 years ago, so it's really one of the first, first that I have that I'm reading from tonight. Um, and there's been a request, I can't believe it, to read a poem called A Yes or No Answer. I, I, I don't write a lot in um, forms, in uh, inherited forms, but when I do, I really have a great time with it. Um, my poems are usually have a lot of patterning in them. But um, this is a poem called A Yes or No Answer. And I thought it would be fun to see if I could write a poem all with the same letter um, ending. And so here it goes. Have you read the story of O? Will buffalo sink under all that snow? Do you double dip your Oreo? Please answer the question, yes or no. The surgery was a touch and go. Does a corpse's hair continue to grow? Remember when we were simpatico? Answer my question, yes or no. Do you want another cup of joe? If I touch you, is it apropos? Are you certain that you're hetero? Is your answer yes or no? Did you lie to me like Pinocchio was forbidden fruit the source of woe. Did you ever sleep with that so-and-so? Just answer the question, yes or no. Did you nail her under the mistletoe? Will you spare me the details blow by blow? Did she sing sweeter than a vireo? I need an answer, yes or no. Are we still a dog and pony show? 
Shall we change partners and do si -do? Are you planning on the old heave-ho? Check and answer, yes, no. With something blue in my trousseau, do you take this man, this woman? Oh, but that was very long ago. Did we say yes? Did we say no? For better or for worse? Ergo, shall we play it over in slow-mo? Do you love me? Do you know? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I've spent, I went to Goddard back in the very, 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 very old days of the 60s. And um, so I've spent lots of time here in Vermont um, while also living in other cities. Um, and um, one, I have a 12, well, at the time, my daughter's 29 now, but when she was about 12, she asked my husband and me if she could get a streak in her hair. And we were here, and you know, there's still a the lot of hippie stuff left over from uh, that time. And uh, so I guess a bunch of these poems are gonna be about marriage, but um, this is also about children, too. Um, I did find out in researching this poem, uh, I don't know if you've heard about Manic Panic, which was a hair dye company in um, Brooklyn. And I called them up, and I felt like an idiot. I called them and I said, you know, I'm a poet, and, and I need to find out some things, like what are the names of your hair dyes, and then they, they were fantastic. They described them to me in detail. So um, I, used, I used a couple of their names, and then I also made up one of my own. There was no way to make up names as good as theirs were. Theirs were brilliant. So I, I don't know if they're still in business. Um, one other thing, and then I'll stop, is that um, I had a student who came to class maybe 15 years ago, and she looked like she'd been in a car accident. And she had, her entire forehead was like green and brown. It was horrible. I mean, she looked like she had been really bashed up. And I said, um, oh my God, you know, what happened to you? And she said, Enchanted Forest, <laughs> which was the name of their beautiful hair dye. Okay, the streak. Because she wanted it so much. Because she'd campaigned all spring and half the summer. Because she was 12 and was old enough. Because she would be responsible and pay for it herself. Because it was her mantra, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because she would do it even if we said no. Her father and I argued until we finally said okay, just a little one in the front, and don't ask for any more and also, no double pierces in the future. Is that a deal? She couldn't wait. We drove straight to town. Not to our regular beauty parlor, but the freaky one. Half halfway house, half community center, where they showed her the sample card of swatches, each silky hank of flame-tipped paintbrush dipped in dye. I said no to deadly nightshade. No to purple haze. No to atomic turquoise. To green envy. To electric lava that glows neon under black light. No to fuchsia shock. To black and blue. To pomegranate punk. I vetoed virgin snow. 
And so she pulled a five out of her wallet, plus the tax, and chose the bottle of dye she carried carefully, all the car ride home, like a little glass vial of blood drawn warm from her arm. Oh, she was hurrying me, darting up the stairs, double locking the bathroom door, opening up, opening it an hour later, sidling up to me saying, well, for a second I thought that she'd somehow gashed her scalp, but it was only her streak, vampire red. Later, brushing my teeth, I saw her mess, the splotches where dye splashed and stained the porcelain, and in the waste bin, Kleenex wadded up like bloodied sanitary napkins. I saw my girl, Persephone, carried off to hell, who left behind a mash of petals on the trampled soil. I'm going to switch to my own coming of age, which was at Goddard, as I just mentioned, in the 1960s. And um, I'm going to read a whole bunch of new poems now. Um, this is called Love Beads. And I was trying to figure out, you know, like who of all the poets, I just, when people say that, like, who do they want to meet more than anybody? And they say Bill Gates, you know, or at the time, Steve Jobs. And I always just said, I just want to meet writers, just writers. So writers are gods to me. So um, this is called Love Beats. And the first line is a complete steal from C.K. Williams, a poet who I really love. Um, and um, here it goes. I wonder if there is anyone but me still living who remembers love beads from back in the 60s when I was a girl, about to start the hippie progressive college in Vermont that the catalog called an experiment in living, and which the boyfriend I met there, who became famous, referred to in the magazine article written about him as sex camp. An hour into my experiment in living, my parents drove off in our orange mercury, that Cinderella pumpkin, and left me giddy at the ball. Not ten minutes later, in the co-ed bathroom, I saw my first naked guy in the bathtub washing a half dozen rocks the size of softball, softballs with a sponge and a bar of ivory. Was he tripping? He barely glanced up when I barged in. Is there anyone still living who remembers carbon sets, dittos, and mimeograph stencils? Typing was a messy affair. The mimeograph machine cranked out poems trailing smeary purple fingerprints. The damp paper had a slight, sweet, chemical smell that got you high. That fall, I heard my first living poet when Allen Ginsberg read Howl in the Cafeteria after he announced that Plainfield, Vermont, my college town, was the spiritual center of the universe. At Dartmouth the week before, Ginsberg had declared Hanover, New Hampshire, the spiritual, the universe's spiritual center. Then he dropped his pants and mooned the crowd. But for us, no such luck. He sat cross-legged on the floor, chanting Om in front of the, street, the steaming trays of Salisbury steak 
and the vegetarian option, then danced around the room with his lover, Peter Orlovsky, while the rest of us ate lunch. I was from New Jersey. I'd never seen men waltz together before. At community meetings, everyone was equal. You could even yell at Tim, the college president, and not get expelled. The motto of our school was learn by doing, Dewey. Like everyone else, I was a nonconformist, Thurber. I smoked weed, I made love, not war. I played guitar, I crocheted my own macrame plant hanger. I lay my head down flat on an ironing board and ironed my long brown hair. The July after graduation, men walked on the moon. Does anyone alive remember when we shopped for clothes at Army Surplus and wore peasant blouses from Guatemala and Pocahontas headbands? And we all wore love beads, those long necklaces we strung with colored homemade beads, like the beads Indians from India wore, and Native Americans, whom we also called Indians. Those strands were symbols of love and peace that some of us may remember from the lives that were once ours, but belong now to history. Actually, I had the line, I had a word I just took out, because the line, the last line is, because I'm still like, still wet clay, you know, I can play with it. Um, the line it really, said the ridiculous lives that were once ours but belong now to history and I don't know I, I'm not sure I don't know <laughs> maybe you guys could tell me what to do I don't know because like we took ourselves very seriously as we should have but when you read it now and think about it it's kind of crazy um, um, this is called Encyclopedia Britannica um, I was born in New Jersey. Um, where is Barbara Israel? <laughs> I was born in New Jersey, um, and uh, I grew up over my parents' clothing store, and they sold dresses. And um, then I fell in love with Vermont. I heard the song Moonlight in Vermont, and I had to investigate. And that's when I fell in love with Goddard and came up here. So. This is a poem from when I lived in New Jersey, and it's called Encyclopedia Britannica. We were as excited as when we bought our new car, and it too weighed a ton. The entire history of the world and everything in it on two whole shelves in our living room, sitting like a judge over our new color TV. We fact-checked over dinner to settle arguments erupting like Etna, volume eight while the Caesar salad was being served. In which movie does Charlie Chaplin eat a stewed shoe? What was the exact date of Kristallnacht? Before we had our Encyclopedia Britannica, everybody had opinions instead of facts, which they stuck to uncorrected unto death. But you couldn't pick a fight with the Encyclopedia Britannica. Even saying its name upped my IQ. It was written by Einsteins, by presidents and professors, people brainier than anybody in my house, on my street, in my town. Experts, unlike my mother who never finished high school. 
Its index of topics was a book in itself, the history of the Persian Empire, the nine planets in our solar system, the anatomy of the polar bear. One day in high school, I looked up my name and wrote a report on the other Jane Shore, 1445 to 1527, The Mistress of King Edward IV, Volume 20. If my parents had had the Encyclopedia Botanica when they were deciding what to name me, would I have been a Jennifer instead of the pen penitent mistress of the king made to walk the streets of London barefoot? Now, over half a century old, it resides in a climate-controlled storage unit on River Road in the cartons I packed after my parents died. Its bulging knowledge forever leashed together between covers, warped and moldering. Its defunct contributors bulldozed under for eternity, as in a family graveyard. Its shahs replaced with ayatollahs. Its Pluto demoted to an, astronoid, an asteroid. Its endangered animals now extinct. Um, I promised I would never want to write about something that was really um, in the news in a um, satirical way. But when Barbie, which a doll I never had, but I was into them, when Barbie turned 50, I thought I'd miss my chance. Um, there's a fantastic writer, you guys, um, named Denise Duhamel, who's written amazing poems about Barbie dolls. Of course, like any of these poems about dolls aren't about dolls themselves. It's always something else. And um, it's, it's a quite funny and very brilliantly conceived book. Anyhow, I had to write mine. And mine is called When Barbie Turns 60. Maybe she'll join Jews for Jesus or try Buddhism. She'll downsize, sell her dream house in pink Corvette, toss out the boxed, closet, cluttering cremains of her beloved pets to make room for an elliptical. She'll diet, but first she must learn how to open her mouth. She's hoping to finally get a vagina, even if it's only painted on, like her 41st birthday surprise when she woke up with a belly button that wasn't there the night before. As the big 6-0 approaches, she'll have the time to read a book that is not one of her accessories. She doesn't want you to think that she's just a chunk of plastic with no brain. She's not quite old enough to retire. It seems like only yesterday she burned her bra. Luckily, she saved her hippie maxi dress and taupe boho fringe bag to sell someday on eBay. The horror, the horror if her clothes don't fit. With zofty curvy Barbie on the market and her fashionista sisters tall and petite with 11 different shades of skin, who will want the original blue-eyed bombshell with the bubble hairdo, pointy boobs, and high heels ready feet, a freak with impossible proportions? 
She's heard the rumors about Barbies being mutilated and shorn, decapitated, thrown into blenders and microwaves, and models that were recalled, epic fails like Oreo Fun Barbie and Teen Talk Barbie, who said she couldn't handle math. You can't call a senior citizen a bimbo. Looking ahead to her seventh decade, a facelift might rekindle her on-again, off-again romantic relationship with Ken, or if he's unavailable, Blaine, that new dude with the man bun. After her diamond anniversary gala, she'll work on recovering the demure sideways glance of her youth. She's a survivor. She'd like you to call her Barbara. Now that was a lot of research I wasn't sure I liked doing, but um, uh, this is called symbolism. Because for so many years, I taught college students to go easy on symbolism, along with allegory and trope on trope. I was surprised to find it at home, debuting in the mouth of my eight-year-old a girl for whom tantrums are rare. She's poised between the first and second floors of our house, on a step halfway between her father and me, our center hallway, an echo chamber for her sobs, her wheezes, her choked up shrieks. Reading in bed behind a closed door, I hear her, I hear her railing at her dad, the man who's quietly trying to reason with her. It must have started downstairs in the dining room, dessert plates still on the table, and sparked with a teasing word, a joke misunderstood, the car of their argument accelerating from one to 60 MPH, her foot on the gas and her father the fuel. Daddy, you think I'm so stupid, I don't know what symbolism is? I know what a symbol is. A cloud is a symbol of sadness. A flower is a symbol of happiness. And you, Daddy, are a symbol of meanness. I cannot let her see me laugh. I crack open the door, tiptoe halfway down the stairs, and sit on the step where my child sits sobbing, just as her father climbs halfway up, waving a box of Kleenex. Um, there's a, a great site for, um, you may have all found it already called, I think it's called Replacements, um, in replacements.com. And anything, if you have, like, if you collect dishes or anything like that, um, you know, you want to get, like, the, the one soup bowl that, that you don't have to make your set perfect. But everyone I know is unloading all that stuff. They don't want that stuff anymore, um, our parents' things. So um, this poem is addressed to my sister, and this is called Mom's Grand Baroque. You sold our mother's sterling silver to pay off your credit card in full. It's yours to sell. 
I don't blame you for unloading the entire set online, plus the mahogany chest it came in. I don't covet that 12-piece service for 12 or have time to polish useless butter knives and fish knives or the dozen extra teaspoons which, waiting for dessert, we'd balance on our noses for effect. Those cascading roses and pillars and acanthus crowns are too formal for potlucks. After the meal, scraping dirty plates, we'd count the silver, and if we came up short, we'd search the trash can for the fork buried in an avalanche of mashed potatoes. Grateful will be the family that will replace their missing soup spoon with a spoon of ours that we'd started polishing a week before Passover and Thanksgiving, each place setting a gleaming parenthesis flanking mom's bone china, which I haven't sold, not yet. Those dozen soup bowls, dozen saucers, and dozen of us, no more, no less, mobbed around our crowded table covered by a starched tablecloth that practically cracked when Mom unfolded it. Remembered how, after having made the pilgrimage to our apartment, having traipsed through the five boroughs to the Garden State, how uncles, aunties carried on about the Republicans, while Dad, our stoic patriarch, guarded the steaming roast or fowl, with mouths full, they'd argued a point until it bled. Those voices are quiet for all time. As Job discovered, not everything you lose can be replaced. Twice a year, Mom's grand Baroque imparted class to our ragtag family. Sister, don't feel guilty. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, let them be divided. Let them cross the Hudson River and pass through exotic zip codes. Let them make their separate ways around the world and enter the mouths of strangers. Okay, <clears throat> I have one last poem. It's longer than these others. Um, but because it's the first night of Hanukkah, and also because this is the title poem for my new book, um, it's called Who Knows One, and it's based on a song that you sing after the, after the um, Seder at Passover. And it's basically a song, of, like a counting song, like you know the 12 days of Christmas. Um, and uh, you know people like to sing it because they think it entertains the children, but it's also a kind of lesson in how to count. Um, the original song that is sung, um, everything that's referred to in it has something to do with the Bible. But because I didn't want to just do that again, I thought I would start playing with the different, sent the different subjects and the different numbers and what you could do with it. And um, I came up with this. And who knows one? Oh, I should tell you, it has 13. So it's not going to go on for like to like 75 different <laughs> stands. We'll be here tomorrow when there's another blizzard. No. Who knows one? Who knows one? I know one. One is God, for God is one, the only one in heaven and on earth.
That's the original one that you're playing with. Then, who knows two? I know two. Two of the first two, Adam and Eve. One is God, for God is one. It takes one to know one. Who knows three? I know three. Bad things always come in threes. Two trees grew in the Garden of Eden. One is God, for God is one. One rotten apple spoils the barrel. Who knows four? I know four. What were you doing on all fours? Three's the hearts in a menage a trois. Two's the jump ropes in double dutch. One is God, for God is one. One good turn deserves another. Who knows five? I know five. Five is the five in slaughterhouse five. Four is Egypt's plague of flies. Three, the stooges on TV. Two, the two-faced lie he told. One is God, for God is one. One hand washes the other. Who knows six? I know six. Six are the wives of Henry VIII. Who, what, where, when, why. Four, the phases of the moon. Three, the bones inside the ear. Two eyes, the better to see you with, my dear. One is God, for God is one. There's only one to a customer. Who knows seven? I know seven. Seven, the year of the seven-year itch. Six, the paper anniversary. Asked if he did it, he pleaded the fifth. Four are my absent wisdom teeth. Three is the three in the third degree. Two can play that game. Three which oops. Two can, oh God, no, sorry. <laughs> Two can play that game. One is God, for God is one. Public enemy number one. Who knows eight? I know eight. The Beatles, eight days a week. Wrath is the seventh of the deadly sins. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. He lost it all in five-card stud. Four bits in a nibble equals half a bite. Three is the beginning, middle, and end. Two are the graves in the family plot. One is God, for God is one. The only one in a hole in one. Who knows nine? I know nine. Nine are the lives of an average cat. Eight is the day of circumcision. Seven, the locks on Samson's head. Six, the sense I wish I had. Five, the five in nickeled and dimed. Four, cold feet in the double bed. Three's a crowd. Two's company. One is God, for God is one. The only one in a one-night stand. Who knows ten? I know ten. I wouldn't touch that with a ten-foot pole. She dressed to the nines. Fellini's eight and a half. Seven the times, the bride circles the groom. Six the number perfect in itself. She daubed her wrists with Chanel number five. Love is just a four-letter word. Three is as phony as a three-dollar bill. Two is the two in double talk. One is God, for God is one. There's one born every minute. Who knows 11? 
I know eleven. Eleven are the stars in Joseph's dream. Ten is the Roman numeral X. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Infinity's a sideways figure eight. Seven long years Jacob had to wait. Six is the lover's tarot card. Five is indivisible. Four, cruel April. Three witches in the Scottish play. Two is the two of I and thou. One is God, for God is one. One in the hand is worth two in the bush. Who knows 12? I know 12. 12 are the face cards in a deck. 11 are the thieves in Ocean's Eleven. Take a deep breath and count to 10. It takes nine tailors to make a man. Eight are the people on Noah's Ark. Seven are the hues in a rainbow's Ark. Six is, I can't remember what. Five, the rivers of the underworld. Four, the rivers of paradise. Three on a match. It takes two to tango. One is God, for God is one. In one ear and out the other. Who knows 13? I know 13. 13 is the skyscraper's missing floor. 12 are the men who walked on the moon. At the 11th hour, his life was spared. Do not covet your neighbor's ass. Nine are the circles of Dante's hell. Eight is the game of crazy eights. The phone was busy 24-7. They deep-sixed their love affair. The five o'clock shadow on your face. Four is putting two and two together. Three is the eternal triangle. Two plays second fiddle. Two minus one equals one. One is one all alone. You are my one and only one. The only one whose numbers 